Turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be look together at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Paul's letter to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Titus 3, 3 through 8. This is God's holy word for us today. God's word says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that... Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed in your eternal, timeless wisdom. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear that we need to meet you as you reveal yourself in your word. Empower the preaching of your word. May I decrease and you increase so that we might receive your word today with faith, with joy, and with eagerness to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through this series during the months of Easter. So in the weeks of Easter, we have been studying together this series that I've called The Resurrection Life. And it's been all about the new birth. The new birth and its role in the Christian life. The new birth, as we've seen, is the commencement of the Christian life. It is nothing less than a spiritual resurrection. God raises us with Christ, connecting us to the resurrection life of Jesus, the Easter life of Jesus. And he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can live out that resurrection life in the world. The new birth is what ties all this together. And the new birth is what gives us a living hope of future glory. 
Last week, we talked about how the new birth sets us on a path of sanctification. As we set our minds on things above and we seek things above, as we set our minds to meditate on Christ and as we seek first his kingdom... In that passage we looked at last week, Colossians 3, we focused on our side of sanctification. We focused on the things we do in sanctification. We seek the things above. We set our minds on Christ. We trust Christ who is our life. We do these things. We must do these things. If we don't, we're finished. I example I like to use is, look, God promised Noah that he was going to save him from the flood. But if Noah hadn't built a boat, he wasn't just going to float. <laughs> right? Noah, I'm going to save you and your family from the flood. Okay, God, I'm just going to sit back and wait. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Christian, I'm going to save you eternally. You're going to heaven forever. Perfect. All right, now just coast and live like nothing changed. Not how it works. Once we have this promise of eternal life, we start living like it. Once we become a disciple, we start following. A disciple is a follower and a student. And if you're a student, you're learning. If you're a follower, you're walking. And so what happens is we get saved, we get changed, and we start getting sanctified. And there is an active role that you play in that. Doesn't mean that you're the one who's making it happen and accomplishing it and you get the glory for being holy. No, no, no. But the more God is at work in us, the more alive we become, the more active we are. So it's never this zero-sum game where it's like, well, if it's two-thirds God, then it's one-third me. Or if it's 100% God, it's 0% me. No. No, the more God works on us, the more alive we come. This is resurrection life, where God energizes us and moves us in the path of sanctification. Last week, we talked about our side of that, where we do some things like setting our minds on Christ and seeking things above. This morning, we're going to focus on the other side of the equation. We're going to focus on what God does in our sanctification. And since it is Pentecost Sunday, we will look especially at the role and work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is situated in Titus 3 within a lengthy statement about salvation in the passage. So first, we're going to look at that larger statement for some context, and then we're going to look more closely at the work of the Spirit. So that's where we're going. So let's begin with this larger context of this larger statement in which the Holy Spirit's included. But to do that, we're going to start at the end. Let's begin at the end of the passage and make some observations that are going to be really helpful for understanding what the passage is about. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Let's just stop there. The saying is trustworthy. Okay, what saying does he mean? What saying is he talking about? Because he's said a lot. This is towards the end of the letter. And he's already said a lot 
in chapter 3. What saying specifically is he talking about? Well, we have a, we have a clue about what it means. This word saying can be translated a whole bunch of different ways. And in this context, it means this word is trustworthy, or this statement, or this message is trustworthy. He's referring to a faithful or a trustworthy message or statement. And what statement is it? What statement is he referring to? Well, the clue here is this. Verses 4 through 7 are just one big, long, flowing sentence in Greek. Paul starts writing in verse 4, and he just keeps putting commas and just keeps talking until he gets to the end of verse 7. And if you're reading in the ESV, they actually translate it that way. They preserve it as just one big, long sentence to give you an idea of what's happening there in Greek. It's one sentence. So it's one statement. It's one sentence. Now, there's a dozen claims in that one statement. There's, a, there's like several things that are claimed, several things that are said. But it's one big sentence. That's your statement. That, verses 4 through 7, is the faithful or the trustworthy statement or message or word. And verses 4 through 7 are about the process of salvation. It's about the process of salvation. It's, it's one big tightly bound statement about salvation from beginning to end. And many scholars who study this letter of Paul think that this is an early creed. That it's a creedal statement. Paul says it's a faithful statement, and that's just a step away from saying it's a faith statement, a doctrinal statement, a salvation creed from the early church. Either one that Paul wrote himself on this occasion or one that he knew Titus already knew and so he can quote it at length because he doesn't have to explain. Now, Titus, get ready. Here comes a creed. Titus knows what it is. So there's several different options for where the creed came from. Did Paul make it up? Did he get it from earlier Christians? Did he learn it from maybe the the, the original disciples? We have no idea. But this is the faithful statement. And it looks like a nice, concise, beginning-to-end statement about salvation. It's a kind of creed. It's a salvation creed. That's the first observation. A second observation here is, as we continue in verse 8, he says, "...the saying is trustworthy, or the statement is faithful, and I want you to insist on these things." insist on these things, he says. Paul is giving Titus instructions for how to organize and oversee the church there on the island of Crete. And he's telling him, Titus, in your ministry, you need to insist on this stuff. Proclaim this creed boldly. Do not budge and do not compromise on these things, on this salvation creed. It's essential that you not give in and change it, but insist on it. Now, Paul says something similar earlier in the, in the letter. At the end of chapter 2 in verse 15, after talking about the work of Christ, in verses 11 to 14, he then ends that section by saying this in verse 15, "...declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you." He's saying if people are like, yeah, 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 that's nice, Jesus did this, but let's focus on this other thing and get away from that. Just take them by the collar and shake them and say, no, 
You can't disregard this. This is foundational. We have to stand on this in everything we do. We can, the work of Christ isn't Christianity 101 and then you move on to bigger and better stuff. No, this is the heart of the whole thing. That's chapter 2. And then he echoes that here in chapter 3. He gives this salvation creed and then he says you've got to insist on this stuff. Declare it, insist on it, teach it boldly, do not compromise exhort people to follow it, rebuke those who reject it or are out of step with it, and don't let anybody disregard you. That's Titus's job as a pastor, to make sure the churches on Crete stay focused on the heart and soul of the message. Don't leave the salvation creed behind. Do not deviate to the left or to the right. One last observation from verse 8, he goes on and says, The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. And here's the reason why. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Why? Should you insist on these things? Why should you declare them boldly? Because this teaching leads to sanctification. You hold tightly and believe this salvation creed, and it will lead you into a life of service and a life of good works. It will lead you into sanctification. It's the starting point of sanctification which means gospel comes first and then comes good works. And that is crucial. We don't start working and then get right with God and then salvation comes second. No, we start with salvation and out of it comes a life, a saved life that loves Jesus, follows Jesus, obeys, etc. He says here that, so that you'll be careful to devote yourselves to good works. These things, these good works are excellent, they're morally virtuous, and they are profitable for people. It's good for other people. This teaching leads to sanctification. This teaching, this salvation creed, will lead to moral virtue in your daily living. And this creed, if followed, if believed, if trusted, if lived out, it will lead you to build up a treasury of good works. Not so you can trade them to God for heaven, because your works don't have any value in that transaction. Your works cannot be traded for heaven. But you have this treasury of good works that you build up and store up, and then you freely give it out, give them away, and dispense all those good works to your neighbor, for the good of others. These things are profitable for people. God doesn't want your good works. He wants you to give your good works to your neighbor free of charge. Just simply to love your neighbor, serve your neighbor, and for the good and well-being and flourishing of others. Freely you've received, so freely give, Jesus would say. So this is important stuff. This leads us into... This sanctification life we're talking about, this is the context for the work of the Spirit. This is the very important context for the work of the Spirit. So what I'm going to do, since it's not our full focus, we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit, but we have to look at briefly what each verse is telling us 
in this creed. So let's walk all too briefly. You could spend a series on this passage. But all too briefly, let's walk through this salvation creed, and then we'll zero in on the work of the Spirit. Let's start with verse 3. Verse 3 is a prelude to the, to the salvation creed. This tells us why we need salvation. Verse 3 is the statement of how lost we are and how in need we are of verses 4 through 7. Verse 3, Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The reason, the reason I believe the Bible is because there are verses like that that are just, you know they're true the second you read them. <laughs> you know they were true of you once upon a time. You know that they're still partly true of you sometimes and because we're still in the middle of sanctification. We're still on the way. We're not fully over this stuff yet. And then you look around you at your culture and you're like, well, duh, of course the Bible's true. That just described what I just saw yesterday on the news or whatever. Right? And everybody can say this in every generation. We're not unique. Everybody everywhere can say, yep, that sounds like the world that's lost. And yep, that sounds like where I was. Then we get the the answer to our need for salvation from all this stuff. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And there Paul is, is using the attributes of God as a way of referring to Jesus. Where does God the Father's goodness and loving kindness appear in the world? Where does it show up? It shows up in a person. God's attributes are not these abstract things that just float in heaven somewhere up there in his eternal, mysterious being. God's attributes are on display, and they're put on display fully and perfectly in his Son, in Jesus. As as Jesus said earlier in the Scripture reading from John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That doesn't mean that Jesus is the Father. It means that he has the Father's perfect goodness and loving kindness in his own heart and soul and mind and he uses all of his strength to show it to us loving us perfectly being good to us perfectly when jesus appeared the father appeared in him and through him jesus reveals the father perfectly to us when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior our deliverer our rescuer appeared in jesus He, the Father, saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our holiness of heart, not because of our good, clean living, not because of our best of intentions, not because of excuses and exceptions for why I'm not as bad as anybody else or why I deserve something above somebody else. God pays no attention to our goodness or merit or worthiness or righteousness or holiness at all because we don't have any to show. And even if we did have a few good works, that's not enough. God doesn't pay any attention to that. It says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not anything we deserved, but according to his own mercy. It's just pure mercy. It's just nothing but mercy to the unworthy. That's all it is. He found us dead and lost in verse 3. And then just in just absolute mercy, he just reaches down and freely gives us this salvation without our deserving 
any of it. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, verse 5, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. Verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, declared righteous, released from the penalty of sin like a criminal on death row who's pardoned by the highest authority in the realm. He justified us, freed us, set us right, pardoned us, declared us not guilty, let us go free by His grace. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. That's adoption, Christian. That's where you got named as a child of the Father and put in the will as an heir of the promises. We might become heirs. That means we're children of God, adopted heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, what a glorious, concise summary of salvation from beginning to end. Starting with our sin and lostness in verse 3, all the way to eternal glory and in the hope of eternal life at the end. A beautiful statement of salvation. We could spend weeks unpacking this. But I just wanted to walk through it so we could see the context. And you see where the Holy Spirit shows up. He shows up in verses 5 and 6. By the, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly. So that's what we're going to zoom in on, having now established the context in this salvation creed. So let's come back now. To what we just saw in verses 5 and 6, and let's look more closely at the role and work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. I'm going to take out the middle part and just keep the Holy Spirit parts. So here's I'm going to read it. Verse 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here in this verse, salvation is described as a process that begins with washing. And this washing or this cleansing metaphor is used for the beginning and the continuation of salvation. In other words, it's used for the new birth and for sanctification. The new birth and sanctification. This word washing in Greek is just a noun. It's a noun. It's not a verb. It's a noun. And it means a bath or a shower. A bath or a shower. He saved us by the bath or the shower of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we're saved by a bath. You're saved by a shower. And you can see the connection with this bath or shower idea in verse 6 because it says the Holy Spirit was poured out on us richly. Now, they didn't have our modern showers, right? But that's what I'm picturing, though, to put this in modern terms. He saved us by us getting under the faucet, and I don't crawl up in there and pump the water out myself. I just stand there and let it just rinse and wash over me. Just let it do its thing. 
And he says, he saved us by this bath or shower of the Holy Spirit being dumped out profusely, poured out on us. Getting bathed in the Spirit brings two things, he says. Regeneration and renewal, the two key terms we need to look at here. We are saved by being bathed by the Holy Spirit. And when we get bathed or showered by the Holy Spirit, we get two things. Regeneration and renewal. Regeneration is a word that we don't often use, but it's a pretty simple concept to grasp because when you generate something, you make it. And then when you're regenerated, you make it again. You generate again. It means to produce a second time. It's a do-over. It's a rebirth. The word can also be translated as a rebirth. Generated a second time. If you took the... It's two words in Greek that are pushed together. And if you broke them into their parts, which isn't always legitimate to do, but sometimes it's helpful. In this case, it is helpful. If you take the, the compound Greek word and you break it apart, it's the word for again and the word for Genesis. You get Genesis again. It's a new beginning. It's a rebirth. It's a coming into a new life. It's the new birth. When you get bathed by the Spirit, you get the new birth, which means that what gets washed off of you spiritually is your spiritual death. Spirit rinses you of spiritual death, and that old life gets washed off you, like dirt getting washed off your body. That old corruption just gets washed off the soul. This is a fulfillment of what Noah's flood couldn't do. 1 Peter 3 makes this connection. Because in Noah's flood, God could wipe out sinners, but he couldn't, the flood couldn't wipe away sin. Yeah, it wiped out the sinners, but it didn't wash away sin because in the next couple of chapters, we're right back where we started. But the Holy Spirit who fulfills that picture, that type of the flood, again, 1 Peter 3 makes this connection, he wipes out the sinners, not by killing us, but by killing that spiritual death in us. He kills sin in us by the Spirit. That's what this washing does. It washes away that old sinful nature and makes us new creatures. It's a regeneration. It's the water of birth. That's the image. It's the water of birth. Second thing we get is renewal. Now, this is not a one-off thing. This is ongoing and constant. It's an ongoing act. Renewal here means made new. We all know what renew means. When your subscription runs out at Barnes & Noble, you renew it, (laughs) right? It was over, and then you renewed it for another year. It's back again, okay? It's you make it new. You are changed. You're restored, and this happens throughout your life. This is the sanctification process, so that when you're bathed by the Spirit, that cleansing stays with you. It's, it's almost, I'm picturing like this waterfall that just follows me everywhere I go. And if I jump out of it and I get dirty and some sin over here, what I need to do is get back under the shower, get rinsed off again, and here we go. Okay? The Holy Spirit is with us. And when we get forgiven... The promise is what? God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How does he do that? 
Holy Spirit is with us to cleanse us. We are regenerated, we're born again, and then as we live, we're still in this filthy world. There are lots of great things about this world, but there's a lot of sinful things about this world, and we get tangled up in it. And what do we need? We need to be rinsed again. Not reborn again. We just need to be rinsed. We're being renewed. Our souls are being rinsed and cleansed of that old moral and spiritual corruption, those bad habits that linger. And we're doing it all through life. That's verse 5. When you get bathed by the Spirit, you get regeneration and you get renewal. You get born again and you get sanctified. Now look at verse 6. It says, This Holy Spirit was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice what this is telling us. Jesus is the one who pours out this Spirit. Jesus is the one who pours out the Spirit. And this is why we're looking at this passage on Pentecost Sunday, because that's what Jesus did at Pentecost. He poured out the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. The Father gave the Spirit to Christ, who then pours it out on His church, and it came down like fire. It came down like tongues of fire. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But this verse says, He poured out the Spirit on us. On us. So remember what I said in this series. When you get born again, that's your Easter moment. You get your own spiritual Easter. When you spiritually come back to life, this verse says you also get your own Pentecost. You get your Pentecost moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, on you. And this says that that salvation event that is unrepeatable in history. We're not actually experiencing the literal day of Pentecost like in Acts 2 over and over again. But what happens is God is able to take us back in time and plug us into what happened on that day and give us the fire and the power and the newness to pour out that Spirit on us today. Just like He connects you to the resurrected life of Jesus, He can connect you to the outpoured power of the Holy Spirit so that we are participating in these things that God has done in the past. He's able to bring them into the future and connect them to you so that you get an Easter moment, you get your Pentecost moment. The last thing to say here about verse 6 is, Jesus pours out the Spirit, Jesus pours out the Spirit on us, and don't miss this word, He pours out the Spirit richly. He pours out the Spirit profusely and abundantly. So Christian, you do not have a trickle of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a few drops of the Holy Spirit. You're under the Niagara Falls of the Spirit. You're under the waterfall. You're being doused and covered with the Holy Spirit. You're saturated with the Spirit. That's the point. You have the Holy Spirit filling you entirely. Your mind, your heart, your soul, your moods and emotions, your actions and motivations. You have the Spirit in every part of you so that you can be changed and be new in every part of you. Sanctification doesn't leave any part of you behind. 
No aspect of your being or relationships is left behind. God is actively working in us to change and renew us. Why? How? He has richly poured out the Spirit so that we are soaked and saturated profusely with the Holy Spirit. What's the Spirit's role in the new birth? Summarize it like this. It is the Holy Spirit that washes you clean of everything we saw in verse 3. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies everything we just saw in verses 4 through 7. Right? He washes you clean of verse 3. He gives you everything we just saw in verses 4 through 7 in the Salvation Creed. And why? So that he can make you into this person described in verse 8, who is devoted to good works, who is full of moral and spiritual excellence, and who does good for others freely, seeking nothing in return. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He starts at your new birth. He continues to renew you so that you become an excellent follower of Christ. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, when he says this. He uses the analogy of Christ and his church as a command to husbands and how they should love their wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Paul's talking about. Washing and cleansing his bride with the water of the Spirit and the power of his word. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's sanctifying us, making us holy. It begins with the new birth, with regeneration, and it continues with renewal. The last thing I want to say this morning is is this. John chapter 3 says that we are born again by water and the Spirit. By water and the Spirit. And that's because Scripture quite often links water and the Holy Spirit. Water is a symbol of the Spirit, and Spirit is often referred to in water-like terms, like being poured out. That's a water image of what the Spirit is. Scripture often links water and Spirit together, and frequently, frequently it does this, and this is the basis for our baptism. This is where baptism, symbolism, and imagery comes from. Why don't we immerse people when we baptize them? Because we don't like it. No. We, we don't immerse. Now you can immerse. I don't have I, no objection to anybody immersing. But we've just chosen to emphasize this pouring out imagery of baptism. That's why I take as much water as I can in my hand and pour it on somebody to symbolize the Holy Spirit being poured out. That's the imagery The imagery here is, I am pouring out water on this person. That's the outward sign, the ritual of baptism. But what's happening spiritually is, I'm not doing anything. 
Christ, through the sacrament, does his work of pouring out the actual spirit. I pour out some water. Jesus pours out the spirit. And baptism is the point of contact for how and when that can happen. It's the sign of these things that Jesus does in baptism. That's why baptism isn't something we do for God to express our faith. It's not a sign of my faith. It's a sign of God's work through Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit to make me a new creature. It's all about the work of God and not about me at all. Baptism is the sign of Pentecost, because as soon as people believed on Pentecost, they got baptized. And baptism is the sign of the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus does. When I baptize somebody, Jesus is the real minister who's administering the grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm just pouring on the water. Jesus is doing the pouring on of the Spirit. The grace of salvation is baptismal grace. The grace of salvation is baptism grace. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism saves. Yikes. <laughs> it actually says that. 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism saves. The book of Acts says that baptism washes away sin. Now, why does it say stuff like that? It says that because baptism is the sign of the work of the Spirit who does those things. And so the names and the effects of the Spirit get applied to baptism. Because baptism is the sign of those effects. You see how that works? Baptism gets described in terms of what it represents. The work of the Spirit. Nothing magic about water. But there's something almighty about the Spirit who uses this water imagery to communicate to us what He does for us. God is not limited to the time of baptism. So that the grace of salvation is baptismal grace, but God is not limited to that moment in time, limited to that ritual as like the only time He can give you that grace. He can give you that grace before baptism. He can give it during baptism. He can give it after baptism. He's not bound. He can work outside of the confines of that sacrament. But that sacrament is there to tell us visibly, physically and visibly what the work of the Spirit is. We are born again by water and the Spirit. And there's this intimate connection between them. So I'll leave you with this, Christian. Your baptism is a constant reminder that you have been saved by God and washed by His Spirit. Earlier I said that I picture this waterfall or the shower following me around. There's a name for that waterfall. There's a name for that shower. It's baptism. When you go today or tomorrow or the next time you sin and feel the need to repent... <laughs> The next time you ask for forgiveness, you're returning to your baptism. You're asking for more of that baptismal grace. Wash me again. Wash me new. Rinse me off. It's shaped like baptism. It's symbolized by baptism. There's a connection between the water and the Spirit. Baptism is a lifelong gift to you, Christian. It follows you wherever you go. And you can return to it and get rinsed and washed by the Holy Spirit. 
You don't get born again over and over, but you do continue to get renewed, and that's gospel good news. Your baptism and the day of Pentecost as well is the sign to you, the reminder that you are saved by God, that you are being transformed each day by the shower of the Spirit. And just like you take a shower to get ready to go meet somebody, the Spirit is showering you up and making you look real nice to stand before Jesus one day. Go to your baptism. Trust in the Spirit. Cling to these promises. Stand on this salvation creed. Let the Spirit wash you and renew you as you follow Him each day all the way to eternal glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would continually remind us of the gift, the precious gift of the Holy Spirit, and that you would use our baptism every day to stir us up to repent and to continue to ask for renewal and to continue to walk with you. May we set our minds on the things above and seek the things above in Christ where he is seated at your right hand. And may we continually look to the cleansing flow of the Holy Spirit to make us new and to prepare us to live a life of good works, to make us holy, to make us ready to serve our neighbor and to love our neighbor. May your Holy Spirit continue to make us ready to stand in your presence. We look forward to that day and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you pour out upon us so richly. May we never forget your gift of the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.